0: Thanks for joining us for the Physical Faith Series. Let's prepare our hearts for what God has to say to us, and please give a warm welcome to Dr. Derry Long. Good morning. Man, spectacular day. You know, our uh, son and daughter-in-law and our two grandkids have arrived back from Beijing, China, where they work all year, and they teach there, and they show up here for the end of June, all of July, and the first few days of August. They think it's like this all the time. (laughs) So just between you and I, let's keep that uh, hush-hush and might as well let them live in the euphoria of that wonderful dream. Anyway, great to see you all. This is the fifth in a series of five messages on physical faith. Hebrews tells us that uh, when we traffic in faith, we traffic in the world of the invisible. And in that world, the Lord has given us a number of physical representations so that we can grasp physically what he's saying invisibly. One was communion, which we took to today, which is the bread and the, and the wine. The second is baptism and the water and the significance of that. A third is a physical act of confession. The fourth was foot washing and how that illustrates um, God's willingness for servanthood. And t- today is the Bible. The Bible is just not preaching on the Bible, but talking about the Bible itself and the physical realities of the Scripture. Let's look at some Scripture to start with, from, uh, first from Psalm 1, 1 to 3. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night, and he's like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yield its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, and whatsoever he doeth prospers. And then from Matthew, Jesus was being questioned, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And with all of your soul and with all of your mind, this is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it: love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I have uh, I have some favorite Bibles over the years of my uh, my life in ministry, and. Uh, One of them is this one. I like it that it's a hardback to start with. It's an NIV, but it actually was a gift for those who attended the 50th anniversary of the National Association of Evangelicals. That's not an organization that's as prominent today, but in its day, it represented around 50 million believers. And at its main conventions, it had powerful speakers, including U.S. presidents. It was at an NAE convention that Ronald Reagan gave his evil empire speech. And at this 50th anniversary, the elder, President Bush, was the primary speaker. And uh, so I not only like this translation, but I just like the Bible because it it just reminds me of uh, stuff that was part of my life. Now, if you're not... 50 or above, you won't get this, but when I was at this convention at the Hyatt Regency in Chicago, I was getting coffee in the coffee shop and Bill and Gloria Gaither were sitting on my, on my left. Uh, in fact, you might have to be 60 to get that. <laughs> and on my right was Stuart and Jill Briscoe who were great in, in their day, great authors and uh, they pastored a great church in Milwaukee. This, this one... This is J.B. Phillips' translation. Back in the 70s and 80s, the J.B. Phillips' translation of the New Testament was perhaps the most popular translation of the Scriptures by universities, uh, from being read by university students. University students across the nation used J.B. Phillips' translation. He's a, he was an Englishman, and he had a wonderful way with words like, uh, listen to this beginning of the book of James, when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, do not resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Yeah, nice, nice phrasing, and the, the whole translation is like that. It's just a, it's a lovely, uh, lovely translation. This is the uh, NIV, uh, leather bound for me. Really, it feels nice. I like how books feel, and I I like this one. It feels nice. Now, the print's kind of small, so now I I have to either read this like this or or like this. So I sometimes use a larger print Bible. But uh, this was given to me by Dan Nefsker. Dan Nefsker lives in Circle, Montana, and he used to just, he skied all winter throughout all of the western United States, and when he wasn't skiing, he was using cocaine. And I got to be part of his life and invite him to the Lord and help him in his early Christian faith. And one day he bought a Bible for me and had my name put on it. And he bought one for himself, had his name put on it. someone stole his out of the back seat so we can only think that the gospel is going everywhere through that. But I still have mine. And uh, when I use it, it reminds me of Dan and our friendship and the significance that our lives intertwine together. So these are favorite scriptures of mine. However, as important as these are, I, there's one I don't have. A, a man was going through a, Christ, a Christian bookstore, and he was looking at a shelf of Bibles, and he came across this one. The Holy Bible signed copy. Now, I I dabble in antiquarian books and rare books. Like, for example, a first edition, English edition of C.S. Lewis's seven volumes, Chronicles of Narnia, sells for about $55,000. But I'm, I'm not quite sure what this would sell for. I mean, the Almighty Himself. Plus, I'm not sure how people would stand in line to get a copy and even if they cheated a little, and it was actually signed by Moses or the Apostle Paul, it still seems to me it would have a lot of value. I would guess if, if God signed it, some of the pages would be charred, but nevertheless, uh, so I don't have anything quite like that. Um, someone told me uh, a while back that every time I preach, I talk about how old I am, and uh, that's kind of true, because I'm at a place now where I am reflecting on what it's been like to be a Christian for uh, from the time I was 17, and this month will be 65, and what it's been like to be part of the church culture for 40 years. My mom was a Sunday school superintendent. She played piano during the morning worship. I don't ever remember not being part of the church culture. And because of that, I have some reflections and some thoughts about the place of the Bible in our lives. And it comes from this question. I've known people in my life who not only came to Jesus, but became students of this book and loved it and met Christ in it. And it brought a sweetness and a holiness and a graciousness and a soundness that you just wanted to be around. But I've met many people who, the longer they stayed on the, in this book, they got more and more sour, judgmental, angry, exclusive, and self righteous. And for years, I pondered that. How could you be around this book and end up with that result? But in fact, the Bible tells us that the Pharisees themselves were such people. Do you know that for many Pharisees at the earliest age that they could read, they were already memorizing Scripture? Many Pharisees could recite the entire first five books of the Bible by heart. Nobody knew the scriptures like the Pharisees. And Jesus was at war with them. At war with them. What was that about? How could someone live in the scriptures like that and miss the mark of what Christianity or what faith in God is all about? You say, well, they were just in the Old Testament. Yes, but this Matthew that I just read, the end of the law and the prophets is love the Lord with all your heart, that's in Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible. How could they miss it so wildly? Some people come to the Bible the wrong way. The Pharisees came to it in order to... to, uh, calibrate their performance. So when the Pharisee went to the temple, he said, Lord, I thank you that I am not like this man. I am not a robber. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not an evildoer. I give myself to the scriptures and to tithing, and he, he began to list off all the righteous activities. The scriptures were for him a way to calibrate his performance. That's not how the Scriptures were written. They, were, they weren't written as a textbook either. Some people talk about the Scriptures as a textbook. Uh, textbook is to, is to give us a sense of sureness about what we know in a certain arena. Like, all right, here's what we know so far in the world of geology. And we write a textbook. Now, let's just take one doctrine in the Christian faith. A doctrine we call eschatology, which is the doctrine of the return of Christ. You tell me that the way God writes about Christ's return was written so we would have clarity? Ezekiel 38 and 39, Gog and Magog talks about an area similar now to Russia and how the, how the, the hordes will come down into the Middle East and there will, be, there will be a holocaust of a war. The Olivet Discourse in Matthew, near the end of Matthew. Then, We dip into Revelation, and we're supposed to get a coherent view of the return of Christ from the book of Revelation. Man, that's why there are multiple views on the millennium, multiple views on the rapture, multiple views on all aspects of the return of Christ. If God wanted to make that clear to us, he could have. There's another aspect of making it a textbook, and that feeds our, our Western-ness, our Americanness. All the books that are six steps to being filled with the Spirit, seven steps to a biblical marriage, eight steps, really, there aren't many steps in the Bible. There are lists, but there's only a couple lists in the whole Bible that are meant to be exclusive, like lists you can't add to. A lot of lists are just examples of all the lists. Uh, the Ten Commandments is kind of an exclusive list. You know, if we're going to have a Bible study on the Twelve Commandments, you, you might want to fill out, a, fill out a card and ask a question of Bob Schwann. <laughs> In Peter, it says... Add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and there are seven things there and that's meant to be an exclusive sequential list, but that's about it. And so we'll often come to the Bible with the wrong approach. E. Stanley Jones was a great Methodist missionary in India and he would have what he called round tables in which people of all faiths would get around a table and discuss their faith. And he'd have Hindus and Buddhists. And he always made sure that the Christians were in the minority. But here was the thing. The discussion could not be about what you believed. It had to be about in whom do you trust. And one of the Hindus, one said to one of the believers, it gets so frustrating Because we have a book just like you have a book, but we have to work our way, and you have a Savior. It's a great difference in coming to the truth. So we're looking for a life giving approach to a life giving book, and the Pharisees show us that there's a way of coming to this book that actually gives you death and gives death to the people around you because you're not coming, I'm not coming the way the Lord invites me. So there are some unintended consequences to approaching this book the wrong way. I'll just give you a few. One is, none of us approach the Scriptures from a neutral place. We all have history. We've all received teaching. We all have experience. And those all impact how I look at the Bible. For example, let's just take one, one truth. The Scripture says, whosoever may come. God loved the whole world and whosoever may come. Now, there are two denominations still very alive and thriving today. One is the free Methodist. You know what the word free means in the free Methodist denomination? Free pews. Because in early Methodism in the United States, you had to buy or rent your pew. And that had obvious implications. One is that the people with money got to hear the gospel. And the more money, the better the pew location. The free Methodists said, that, that's not right. It's whosoever. It's anyone. And so they founded the free Methodist denomination. We had a, we had a woman stay, at our, stay with us when we lived in Minneapolis, Numa Haji, a Muslim, Muslim girl from Morocco who was in Minneapolis, taking part in in a program the University of Minnesota has for foreign students coming into the U.S. And uh, her dad was a teacher at the University of Rabat. And in Morocco, you had to pay for elementary education, but college is free. And I I said, but doesn't that favor the people who are in power and have wealth? And she said, well, exactly, that's the point whosoever may come. Another funny thing about Nuima, she'd never been in a temperature below 60 in her life. She couldn't quite grasp when we tried to tell her that in the wintertime, people still went to school. She said, "Well, but, but, but don't they get cold? Well, they put on coats. Well, doesn't their head get cold? Well, they wear a hat. Yes, but their hands would be... Well, they put on gloves. She, she, she transferred to the University of Houston. So... <laughs> the wesleyan what was what now is called the wesleyans which was the wesleyan methodist church they started their denomination on the principle of abolition whosoever will god loved the whole world and so there were much of methodism was pro slavery because much of methodism was in the south and the wesleyans were abolitionists and were against slavery and that was the foundation You and I come to the scriptures with backgrounds. We also come with this unintended consequence. Now what I want to explain to you, I'd like you to hear it all the way to the end before you judge it, okay? After many years in this faith, I had to decide this. The Bible... That we believe is the inspired Word of God, given to us by God. This book that is inspired of God is dependable and trustworthy in all matters it addresses and is all we need for faith and practice. But the Bible is not my Christ. Christ is my Christ. Christ is my Redeemer. Christ is my Savior. And this book inspired by God points from Genesis to Revelation this great drama of redemption. Now I'm going to tell you why that matters. Because if the Bible is my Christ, if the center of my faith is a Bible, then the center of my faith is a book. If the center of my faith is a book then inevitably the center of my faith will be propositions. And the highest value will be knowledge. And that knowledge will will result in exclusivity. But if Christ is the center of my faith then the center of my faith will be a person. And because it's a person Then relationship will govern what Christianity is about. And the highest value will be love. And then evangelism will be the natural outflow of that value system. Eighty percent of the churches in the United States are either static or in decline. Despite the fact that the last words Jesus gave us were about reaching the world and making disciples... The church of Jesus Christ has been such an abysmal failure at that in the United States that even in the evangelical world, it is now in decline. And it is not in decline because the churches are all filled with bad people. What do you mean? You haven't won anybody to Christ this week. What's wrong with you? It's because we have let there develop a bad system Because if Christ is the center, relationship matters, love is the highest value, and I can't walk through a community without my heart breaking for the people who do not know Christ and have heaven as their assured home. So Christ is the center of our faith. And the inspired scriptures point to him. When they asked the man who was blind, how did this happen to you? All he said was, I'm I'm not exactly sure, but I met a man, and this is what I know. Once I was blind, but now I see. Because he met the person of Jesus Christ. So if I come to the book in a way that's going to bring life, a book of life for those seeking life, how do I come to it? One of of my favorite speakers over the years was E.V. Hill. E.V. Hill was a big black preacher from Los Angeles. And I I heard him speak in a number of settings. And he's just absolutely marvelous. And uh, the Lord had called him to minister to this church in Los Angeles. And he didn't want to go. He questioned whether the Lord had gotten his wires crossed, and uh, even after visiting, didn't want to go. And he had good reason for not wanting to go. This church had such a history of conflict that when they had a congregational meeting, they had to hire off-duty policemen to be present in the room. That's not a well place. Come to Jesus. Look's what it's doing for us. You know. Finally he felt God was in it. And so he said yes. But he said yes on this condition. He said. I'll come to your church. On this condition. I'm going to preach the book of Acts. Until, the, until we look. Like the book of Acts. And until then. We'll go nowhere else. And for months and months and months, amidst whatever came up, he preached on the book of Acts. Because he was addressing the very thing that all of us have to address. We cannot allow a gap of great size between what we know and how we live. And you try to close the gap between what you know and how to live and you know you need Jesus. And he said, we're going to close that gap. It was, he had a wonderful philosophy. It was an area town where a lot of people were involved in a lot of bad stuff. And so whatever sin you got saved out of, you became a committee member of that sin. So there was a pimps committee and a prostitutes committee and and uh, so one, one day, they, they'd, that week, they had helped a pimp find the Lord. And so that Sunday, being a good new Christian, he brought all of his women to church. <laughs> and they paraded right up to the front, sat in a row together. And uh, at the end of the service, Evie Hill gave a gospel invitation to come forward and accept Christ. And the pimp leaned forward. Caught the eye of every one of the women, and they all stood up together and they filed, they filed out. Which Evie Hill was glad to see them, but he had to tell the pimp that really these were personal, individual decisions and ought not to be coerced. Um, that great church, that great church existed because he knew this book had to be lived. I'm going to tell you what happens when you decide it has to be lived. When I decide to put in action this book, then I need faith. And God shows up at the point of faith, not at the point of knowledge. I can read this book till I'm blue, just like the Pharisees did. And I can pile knowledge on knowledge. But knowledge by itself, outside of application, Scripture says puffs us up. It gives us an arrogant spirit a superior spirit but when I'm gaining knowledge and then I'm trying to apply it and God has to come and be my aid in applying it then it puts me in a place of humility and brokenness before the Lord and that person the world wants to see action that requires faith God who shows up at the point of knowledge You see, God the Father sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be the physical representation in our world of what God was like. Jesus Himself said, you want to know what God is like? Look at me. And then Jesus turned to us and He said, just as I am the incarnation of the identity and the value of the Father, you now are my body. And you are the incarnation of me. And he says to a broken world, if you want to know what I am like, you look at my people. And we can't get ourselves there. The center of our faith is a book. And we're filled with propositions and our highest value is knowledge. No, we get ourselves there when Christ is at the center Love is our highest value. And we can't wait to get out among people to share with them what we have found. Well, let's set our things aside and bow our heads as we finish up. So our heads bowed in prayer and eyes closed... You might be here this morning and and you know you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. This Christ who gives you this book to learn of him, to walk with him and obey him. He's real. And on this beautiful day, this is a great morning just to pray and Admit your failure and your sin, and invite him into your heart, and you start a new relationship with him. This God who loves you, and you could pray right where you're seated. Make that transaction with God, and we'll wait while you do that. And some of us here are believers, but you recognized it when I spoke about the gap that exists between what you know and how you live. That often God doesn't show up because we're not really putting that much energy into living out what the Lord's been showing us in this book. This morning you want to pray and you want to say, Lord, I am sorry for this gap. I don't like it. It doesn't feel right. I'd like you to touch my life afresh power of your Holy Spirit so that I might begin to close this gap so others will see me as the authentic believer I want to be whichever prayer you're praying we're just going to stop now for a moment and we're just going to wait while you just pray in your own words to the Lord With our heads bowed and eyes closed, we're not gonna embarrass anybody, but if the Lord has been gracious to talk to you this morning and you've invited him into your heart, would you just slip your hand up and put it down and just honor the Lord in that way? So you know I invited Christ in, yeah, way over here in the right, over here on my right, you bet. Anybody else? Up here in my right again? Yep you're my left, you bet. And how about us who are believers? as the Lord reminded some of us we got to close the gap. the gap between what we know and how we're living. And you just want to say yes to the Lord by slipping your hand up and putting it down. yeah right here in my left and well, all over, all over dozens of us, you bet, you bet. God bless you. Let's pray. Lord, for these who've slipped their hands up today to receive you as their Savior, I pray you'll rush grace to them and they'll have that witness of the Holy Spirit in their heart that something has changed. And I pray that something very physical will cement that decision. Perhaps a conversation with a person, an insight from Scripture, but Lord, some way so this decision isn't stolen away from them. Then for many, many of us who've just admitted the gap is too wide. Lord, we know there will always be a gap because our aspirations will outstrip our ability as fallen people to live everything we want, but we we can't handle a gap that's too wide. It just doesn't feel right. So for those who brought their hands up, I pray that you'll send grace, your power to help us in that need. You'll ask, you'll tell us where to start. You'll give us inner strength to begin that journey.